0: from there say, what is it that I am going to need to be successful and what do I have to offer others so they can be successful too, because it's a two-way street.
1: Welcome to the Breathe Easy Podcast, hosted by myself, Dominic Pepper. In this podcast, we ask an expert clinician, teacher, or researcher, to share their insights about career opportunities in the fields of critical care, pulmonary medicine, or sleep medicine. And for today, we go to Burlington, Vermont, to discuss developing your career.
0: The biggest mistake people make is they don't sort of think, all right, this is where I want to be in five years, and this is what I really have to do to get there.
1: Before we get started, uh, would you like to introduce yourself?
0: Sure, so I'm Dr. Polly Parsons and I'm the E.L. Amidon Chair and Professor of Medicine at the University of Vermont and I'm the um, Vice President of the American Thoracic Society.
1: So, could you tell me your story about how you became the Vice President of uh, the American Thoracic Society?
0: Uh, So, it actually, probably my involvement with ATS started when I was a fellow. Um, I actually had a mentor who was very involved in ATS, and he was pretty adamant that I was going to present my work there early on. So when I was probably a second-year fellow, um, I had my first poster at ATS, and I was uh, scared, very scared to stand in front of a poster, (laughs) (laughs) as you can imagine. Um, The meeting was a lot smaller then, so um, you could see all of the big names in pulmonary walking around, and actually a number of them came up and spoke to me and asked me about my poster, and I was astounded that... People wow, actually care. That's
1: pretty nice of them.
0: It was pretty. It was very mm. nice. It was very mm. generous of them. So mm. it was really awesome. So that that got me started in, in the American Thoracic Society pretty early, um, and then over time, I had the opportunity to be involved in a large number of committees and in different parts of my assembly, which was the critical care assembly. And you know, I've always been. I was at the University of Colorado, and now here at the University of Vermont, where we have strong and pretty large pulmonary critical care programs. But the world at ATS got, gave me a much bigger world of colleagues um, cool. and, and friends. So over time, it was a big part of my professional life. And I always admired the people that were the leaders of the organization. I think it's a very important organization. And um, people had talked to me for a long time about, you know, aren't you interested in being a leader? And I actually have two sons who are now... My youngest one's about to graduate from college, but when they were younger, I didn't like to travel that much um, and be away from home for long periods of time, but once the the youngest one was gone and away in college, it was really an opportunity for me to be able to give back to the society in a leadership role. So started when I was a fellow um, and has continued to be my home.
1: And then following your fellowship, what specific resources were you able to um, uh, use at ATS and how did you utilize them to their full advantage?
0: Um, I think the biggest resources for me were, one, the opportunity to present my work and get feedback, which I was getting a lot of within my own home institution, but to really get to meet other people in the field and not um, not just my peers who were um, sort of at my level of, you know, of, of training or um, faculty development, but a lot of senior individuals as well, so getting feedback. Um, and then also just have the community of people that I sort of grew up with in pulmonary medicine. So I always had, you know, the people I was fellows with in Denver, and we were junior faculty together there. But then there was a group sort of nationally that I got to know through my research in acute lung injury, and we sort of all grew up together, and we all kind of transitioned all in our different institutions, um, you know, did some collaborations together. We sort of um, you know, became we were assistant professors, and then we were associate professors, and we kind of always used each other as sort of a peer group of mentors. Um, that was tremendously helpful. So just that sort of camaraderie and the sort of broader community that I had to work with was incredible. Now, when I was coming through the ATS, the resources in terms of grant funding um, that come out of the foundation now, those kind of thi- those kind of resources weren't yet available at ATS. Um, some were ama- available through the American Lung Association, but I think there are even more things now. So, you know, you think about ATS in terms of faculty development resources, in terms of grant resources, um, there's even more than when I started. which is pretty exciting to see.
1: You were the director of the pulmonary critical care program from 2000 to 2005. Mm -hmm. um, And you obviously had the opportunity to work with a number of pulmonary critical care fellows. What do you think it takes to be an outstanding uh, fellow?
0: You know, it's interesting. If you think about pulmonary and critical care, it is such a broad field. I mean, pulmonary alone is a huge field, and then critical care is a huge field. And so, to be an outstanding pulmonary and critical care, and then add sleep in for some people, um, I think you have to ha- um, have a large, a number of characteristics. I think that the first one is y- you've got to be an outstanding clinician, and you really have to care about patients. Um, because without that, you really don't have the foundation and you probably wouldn't have picked the, picked the um, subspecialty to start with. And then after that, it's a lot of the things you think about for anybody to be successful. Um, you want to be, be sort of curious and compassionate. You want to really be committed. Um, you need to, more than any probably part of medicine, you need to be a team player and a collaborator, because there are just so many decisions you're making and so many different types of patients you're dealing with at any one time. You can't do it alone. And the nice thing about critical care is it really, it's been team science since it started. Um, And so that sort of being part of a team and being comfortable being part of a team and being comfortable um, looking to others for help, saying, I don't know, and looking not just to your attending or other faculty, but to nursing and respiratory therapy and everybody else to sort of say, how do we do this together, I think is a really important characteristic. I think the other thing you know to be a really good person is to really to be a good pulmonary critical care fellow you have to be able to really think broadly. You know, it's 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 a pretty it's a lot of information to take in whether it's in the clinic with a complicated patient with interstitial lung disease or it's in the ICU where things are happening fast and furious. So you have to have a really good knowledge base, be able to think really broadly, broad differentials, honing them down. But at the same time, you have to be able to act quickly and be decisive at some points. And those are two very different skill sets that to be successful in the pulmonary critical care world, you kind of need both.
1: Uh, You mentioned the importance of teamwork and uh, collaborating. Um, When a fellow uh, becomes a junior faculty member, uh, how would you advise them to develop uh, research collaborations or networks?
0: So um, there are many different ways to do it. And a lot of the... um A lot of it depends on what your area of research is. So traditionally, you know, a long time ago and far away, when I was training, research was pretty much basic science, all right? Most of us went into basic science labs. There wasn't, you know, remember, translational medicine is a relatively new term, um, believe it or not. And so... Um, part of it is to sort of say what what area of scholarship am I going to be involved in and what collaborations do I need for that? So if you're gonna be in a basic science environment, you may not need quite as many collaborators on a day-to-day basis as you would need if you wanna do large clinical trials where you may need to develop networks across the country. So sort of thinking, what are your goals? What's your area of research? And And then from there say, what is it that I am going to need to be successful, and what do I have to offer others so they can be successful too? Because it's a two-way street, Um, and you can develop collaborators just right there locally in your own institution. I'm always surprised, even in an institution the size here at University of Vermont, I mean, we're medium-sized, we're not thousands and thousands of people, and yet there are many individuals who don't really know what the person next door to them is doing, and they've missed unique collaborative opportunities and unique partners. So kind of looking broadly, or just right around in your own realm, Um, And then, like I say, getting involved in national organizations like the ATS to find additional colleagues, sort of like-minded people. They'll be sitting next, standing next to you doing their poster. You'll go to a presentation in your area and realize that the audience is filled with people who are also interested in the same areas you are. And don't be afraid to just walk up and talk to people. Um, And, again, a lot of it depends on what you need for your for your collaborative research. Some is a much smaller realm, um, and others you need a much bigger network.
1: True. Um, I know in 2010 you gave a speech on um, how to say no and uh, manage your time effectively. Um, What advice would you give to fellows or junior faculty when developing their academic career? I mean, what have you seen are the common mistakes and how would you advise them to avoid these mistakes?
0: So, You know, it's interesting. I think the biggest mistake is that people don't stay focused. So, um, you know, when you're – part of the issue is when you're a fellow – you're sort of pretty focused on the clinical mission and then you have some time to do your research. They're kind of not, you know, you kind of have some segmented time. Once you become junior faculty, everything's kind of blended together. And you have to sort of, the biggest mistake people make is they don't sort of think, all right, this is where I want to be in five years and this is what I really have to do to get there. And I can't like just put that off for a year and I really need to stay focused in different areas. And, and what happens is, people tend to gravitate to those things that they're most comfortable with and that are the easiest. So for example, writing a manuscript is not what most of us do really readily well right out of the box. That's one of, I mean, things like that are harder because we're used to being good clinicians. And so they end up um, letting their clinical time expand way beyond to what it actually needed to be. It's not. And they're very conscientious doctors, but then they kind of gravitate and they go back to the ICU and kind of hang out. And
1: it know, makes them it comfortable. It, it, it's, it's yeah, because it's they're comfortable
0: it. it's there, etc. Whereas you go back to your office by yourself, close the door, and write a manuscript. It's like this is really hard. So kind of really staying focused. And then the how to say no. I'm really good at telling people how to do that. I'm really bad at doing it myself. So I can totally empathize. But the other thing is, is when you start as a junior faculty. It's not uncommon, you get asked to do a lot of things. So, um, you'll be asked to be on different committees by your department chair or your division chief, et cetera. And some of those are very important. You need to be part of committees or parts of teams. um, And you'll need some of those for promotion as well as for your own personal growth. But there's some things that'll come where you'll be like, I don't even know what that is. I wonder why they're asking me to do it. And so you do have to say no to some things. You can't do everything. And learning how to say no in a way that doesn't look like you're only looking out for your own self, but you are still part of a collaborative team is is a bit of an art. And I've seen people do that poorly in two directions. One is never learning how to say no. They say yes to everything and then they just get totally overwhelmed. They get even more burned out than everybody else and they don't do anything very effectively. They've just got three million irons in the fire and they're struggling and everybody around them is struggling. And then there are others who learn to say no way too emphatically and way too often. They really are only looking out for themselves. They don't they don't kind of you know, jump in when there's a need, when the team kind of needs some help. Um, and, and that doesn't work either. So sort of finding that balance um, and feeling comfortable sometimes saying, boy, I would love to do that. I just can't do it right now. Is there a way we can put that off? Or my colleague could do it and I'll do this for somebody next time. Those kind of things, are they take a while to learn. It's not always easy and comfortable, but like I said, the two extremes get people in trouble.
1: How much do you think personality has to do with it? I mean, uh, in, in, uh, critical care people usually have to make quite the definitive or decisive decisions, um, and then they're used to this high-octane environment, and then having to transition to a more we got to uh, uh, have a lot of interpersonal relationships with people either in the office or um, uh, on the academic front. Uh, do you think it's difficult to transition to that, or what point is, would you give?
0: Um, I think a number of people transition into it well. Um, It's interesting. So um, I'm married to a psychiatrist, and so people think psychiatrists have a certain personality, and I'm a critical care doctor, and you've just identified the personality for a critical care doctor, right? Um, And so we always joke that between the two of us we have normal children.
1: Oh, wow. Um, Okay.
0: (laughs) So, um, So I think the critical care personality is one. We tend to be, okay, I see the issue, I see the problem, I've taken in as much information as I can, we've got to make a decision now and go and and we have to take that and 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 kind of step back a little bit when we do step into other environments and it's a skill we learn and that's why if you're going through a fellowship that's both pulmonary and critical care it's a really nice balance because in the pulmonary clinic you're going to be acting differently than you're acting in the icu right we're not making decisions quite as fast we're working at a different speed sometimes we have more time to make decisions we have more time to talk to patients um the the urgency is much less. And so if you're doing both of those, I think it doesn't become an issue. If you're in the ICU going full court press all the time, um, it can be hard to make that transition. And I know that even in the days when I'd be like the ICU attending and then run down to a meeting as a chair of medicine, I'd have to like kind of turn my brain into a different direction and kind of mentally think, okay, now I'm going into a meeting where we're We don't have the same pace. I'm not playing the same role. You just have to be a little conscious of it.
1: I get you. Um, And and then for fellows uh, who are planning to do um, polymer and critical care, what do you think the field will look like in the next 10 to 15 years? Uh, What should they be on the lookout for?
0: So that's a hard question. You know, what's going to happen tomorrow in anything these days? I think is a little that's challenging. True. Um And and for me, you know, when I think about it, it's a very different environment than I was than when I was a fellow. So critical care has really um, expanded dramatically. So the field of critical care actually came into being shortly after when I was a fellow. And officially, we didn't. There were no boards when I was a fellow. They were shortly afterwards, where we got to take another exam. Um, but if you look at it now, um, I think. Part of what will happen is that there'll be um, myriad new opportunities. So um, there are new opportunities both in terms of career choices that'll come up in critical care, um, as well as in the way we care for patients. So when I think about sort of career choices, the thing I'm struck by that I think is pretty exciting in some ways, that's true for critical care pulmonary and actually all fields is, it used to be a little bit more black and white in terms of whether you chose to stay in academic medicine or you chose to go in private practice. They were two very distinct entities. In academic medicine, you were pretty much a physician in the physician-scientist mold on the tenure track. That's kind of all that was available. But now you can be a clinical scholar and you can be an extraordinary teacher and creating new curriculum, which in the ICU could be pretty exciting. Think about what you can do in simulation, et cetera. You can um, do clinical trials work, um, which I think there are increasingly opportunities in the ICU to do those, Um, and those involve in large networks, Um, NIH has several, as well as there are several independent ones. Um, You can also be involved in quality, the scholarship around quality, so that alone is a huge, unique, pretty exciting opportunity, especially in critical care. Think of all the different quality activities that have come into being there and think of the impact you can have. Um, Implementation science, which is sort of something we've known we need to do for a long time, but hasn't really been codified as well um, until recently. It's great that we know that we should be doing low tidal volume ventilation in the ICU, but how do you make that actually happen? And that can now be, that's a science and can be a career goal. So I think critical care will continue to offer really pretty, um, a really nice, diverse, broad number of career opportunities for a variety of practitioners that'll really be fun. So you'll have a lot of different people coming at critical care, not only from different angles in terms of pulmonary and anesthesia and the ER and surgery and everybody that's in the ICU, but you'll have your basic scientists, PMDs, you'll have your clinician, clinical trialists, you'll have your implementation scientists, you'll have your quality scholarship, um, and all those different things, I think will make it an even richer environment. The other thing that I think is gonna happen in the field of the clinical arena itself is um, I think we'll probably um, eventually even in the ICU get a little bit more towards what people are calling personalized medicine. I'm not sure we're gonna get there right away, but I think we've really figured out that um, heterogeneity among the patients in the ICU is a pretty important factor and sort of focusing on sort of individualizing um, treatment and therapy. Um, will probably start to evolve even more in the ICU, probably a little more slowly than in some of the areas like uh, other areas like cancer, et cetera. But I think even in the unit, it'll happen. So I think it'll be an exciting field. Um, The other thing that'll likely happen, although I don't know when and maybe never, is more regionalization. What do you mean by that? So how many centers can we do ECMO in, for example? And how do we how does that get decided? So just like there are certain level one trauma centers, is that something that'll happen with ICUs? And I don't know, but as medicine evolves, and we know that we can't do everything in every hospital, um, you know, will there be more sort of focus on sort of higher intensity ICUs in different areas? And, And that may evolve. It certainly has in other parts of medicine
1: um I, I was struck by the few number of women in leadership roles um in, in ats um and, and, and this has been um a concern not only in medicine but in other um specialties uh, business um what what challenges did you encounter um as as you progressed uh, in the field of medicine and um, how would you uh, address them or uh, make sure that we have a balance between men and women uh, practicing medicine and taking care of patients? Um,
0: so the world's changed, which is good. Uh, I went to college at a time I was at um, I was at Radcliffe College at Harvard, and they had forgotten to tell us that we couldn't be whatever we wanted to be, So, we oh. just, uh, which is good. Ayo. So we sort of went into the world thinking, we're good. Um, so I've sort of... Um, and there there were fewer women than men at college by far. Um, and when I got to medical school, we were in the minority, and, and it's been that way kind of all along. So it it was what it was, there just weren't that many women, there weren't that many role models, but I didn't really think about it in the beginning. Um, I think the good news is, is that we've made tremendous progress. So. Overall, um, even in the field of critical care, there are more women than there were. Um, we are slowly getting there. I think there are a couple of issues. One is, I think, in the world there's still, um, and in certain pockets of the world, there is a bit of a glass ceiling, and it more or less depending on certain institutions and in certain parts of of work, um, I find that less and less as I go on. But the other thing is is that the field that we're in with pulmonary critical care, especially you know, whether you're in practice or in academic medicine, it's a pretty demanding field. Um, and the leadership roles are getting to be more and more demanding, um, and so not everybody wants to do those jobs. Um, I think people are um, smarter these days about thinking about and there's no such thing as work-life balance, but there's at least there's work and there is life, and how do you make sure that you actually have both of those? I think people are thinking more clearly about that. Back when I went to medical school, you did college. The next day, basically, you started medical school. You went right into internship where you were on call every other night or every third night. You didn't really think about life outside of medicine, and people are thinking about it a lot earlier now which is smart. Um and so I think some people have appropriately said I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a leader. Um and that's a legitimate that's a legitimate choice and I respect that choice. Um I think that like I say I think the good news is it's there's a lot more of us now. We are slowly making progress in the leadership ranks. Um but it's an ongoing conversation as to why more people aren't choosing um to be leaders or Making it into the leadership ranks, and again, I think it's a little bit of a little bit of glass ceiling still in some places, and a lot of thoughtful, you know, people saying, "Not sure that's the role I want," or "Can we change those roles so that they are more amenable to having a well-balanced sort of work-life experience?"
1: And, and from a personal point, how have you managed to? I mean, you've had. Incredible success. Uh, you mentioned the vice president of ATS. Um, you received numerous uh, teaching achievement awards. How have you been able to balance and and make sure that you stay centered, but you still lead a productive life?
0: Um, so I think the thing for me that's been um, the biggest the biggest influence for me is uh, I'm married to somebody who's tremendously supportive, and we kind of divide things up. So when we had children he was as involved as a parent as I was, um, and, you know, we both have careers, and we both we both are pretty flexible um, in that regard, and for me, that's made all the difference, um, and then the other thing that, I, you know, as I kind of look back, people are like, well, you must be a super person. I'm like, uh, not even close, and if you talk to my sons, they will reassure you that I am very much not a superstar. Oh, that's for... hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> they're great. Um, I think, you know, you kind of get to a point where you're like, you know, not everything's going to be perfect. There are going to be days when stuff at work isn't perfect. There are going to be days at home when you're like, wow, all the other moms made beautiful cupcakes that are decorated and my kid took Oreos, oh well, and you just have to kind of be flexible about it and realize you're not going to be, you're just not, not everything's going to happen and it's not all going to get done perfectly and some things are going to crash and burn. And the first few times it's happened, it's awful, and then you kind of learn that that's the way life is, and you can't do it all and so you don't you don't really worry about it as much um The other key thing is you know work is like very important, and work in general is phenomenal, but having friends and family and doing things outside are equally phenomenal, and making sure you really do pay attention and do both that you don't get sort of so narrowly focused that, you know, you'll, you're 20 years down the road and go, whoa, really wish I'd done X. Um, and so for me, the you know, the balance of family has been really helpful. I have to tell you that my two sons have been phenomenal. They're really good about grounding um, me. You know, they'll be like, what are you talking about? Or, uh no, you, I need dinner now, um, things like that. Um, and they've turned out to be great adults um, who still are there for me. So it's really neat.
1: Well, on that positive note, thank you very much. A big thank you to Dr. Polly Parsons for joining me. And thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.